Our Vineyard Kids team have had a number of opportunities recently over recent months to go into schools, and they've been doing assemblies. They've also been doing these things called prayer spaces. They give an opportunity for mainly children, also some adults, just to come into a space in the school and to be able to engage at some level, whether they have a faith or not, engage at some level with prayer and connection with God. And one prayer space in a school gave them the opportunity, these children, to just write down some of the things that were concerning them, things they just wanted to bring to God. And this is what some of them wrote. And some of these children are really very, very young, year two and three, I think, and four. I'm worried that if I'm naughty, my parents won't get me anything. I'm worried when a dog comes near me. I'm worried about getting bad results. Another child said, I'm worried about terrorists being unpopular and having no friends. I'm worried about becoming homeless. I'm worried about getting stuck in a lift. And these dear little ones have concerns in their lives, things that they're worried about. It seems that the habit of worrying starts very early in life. Worrying is something that we probably all do. It's hard to imagine how we could live in this world and not sometimes worry. We have an economy that is not always completely robust. We see news about ongoing wars. We see terror attacks happening. We live in a world of Ebola and Zika viruses, and it can seem as if our world is a little bit fragile at times. How can we not worry? The reason we have insurance companies is to protect us against some of the things that might happen. They might not, but if we're worried about them, we can take out a policy. And it seems that people want insurance for increasingly weird risks to be covered. There is a London-based firm, for instance, which specializes in alien abduction insurance policies. <laughs> yes, and they've sold more than 30,000 of these policies. You can buy coverage to compensate you if you're hit by an asteroid. After hearing the case of a man who lost his sense of smell in a car accident, a winemaker whose nose was worth a lot, his name is Ilja Gort, he took out an $8 million policy on his nose. And the Telegraph newspaper reports Jonathan Thomas, the lead underwriter of the policy, saying this, this certainly is an insurance policy not to be sniffed out. <laughs> There's more. Mariah Carey, the singer, insured not her voice, but her legs for a reported $1 billion. The American comedian Rich Hall insured himself against loss of humor. <laughs> Tom Jones insured his chest hair for $7 million. I don't know what he thought was gonna happen, set fire to it or something accidentally, I have no idea, seven million. He, anyway, he paid the premium, paid the whatever, you know, the installments. And Merv Hughes, the Australian cricketer, took out insurance cover of $370,000 for his moustache. People take out insurance because they're worried about stuff. It might happen, we better cover ourselves for it. Now on a more serious note, you may be in a situation today that is actually causing you to worry. Maybe there's some major issue in your life. Uh, perhaps you've lost your job. Try as you might, you're not finding another. Maybe finances are tight. Worse still, you may be deeply in debt. Some of you may be facing huge health problems or a loved one close to you is facing huge health problems, possibly even a life-threatening illness. 
Some of you are deeply troubled by something going on in your family. Or perhaps it's just the everyday little things that cause you to have some anxiety. So in a world where there's a lot of things to worry about, including your chest hair being set on fire, what does Jesus have to say to us? That, that sentence didn't actually start on my notes, you know, that kind of unfolded as I went. Um, anyway, as a follower of Jesus, is there any guidance that we can take from him about how to navigate the uncertainties of this life and live with a sense of peace instead of a sense of panic? So I want to look at today at a few words that Jesus shared with his disciples the night that he handed himself over to be killed. And we find these in the book of John. And from chapter 13, which starts with Jesus washing his disciples' feet, to the end of chapter 17, before Jesus is betrayed, it seems like Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he will no longer be around, like his final parting thoughts to his friends before his death. So if you have a Bible, you might like to turn with me to John chapter 16, otherwise the screen will show the text. We're just going to focus in tonight on one verse. John chapter 16 and verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I want to just unpack the single verse and just draw out of it what I think the Lord would want to say to us today. First of all, I have told you these things, and these things included the fact that he was going to be killed, his disciples were going to be scattered. And, you know, we're often left with the impression as he told them some of those things, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand what was really happening, why he was saying what he said, and what all that really meant. And Jesus told them these things for a reason. He knows they're about to experience all of their hopes being dashed. He knows they're about to see him go through this excruciating ordeal, at the end of which they will see him nailed to a cross and killed. They'll see his dead body hanging there, and they will think, you know, it's all over. Jesus predicted his death a number of times in his conversations with them, but it's clear that none of them truly understood what he was going to go through. And so I see Jesus here telling them these things so that later they can think back and they can fully understand. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Jesus' goal was that they would have peace. And in the face of the devastation of his death, the apparent shattering of all their dreams for the future, they believed he was ushering in. He wanted them to have peace. Now, here's what I see in this passage about the nature of peace. Three little things. First of all, peace is found in the person of Jesus. He says, so that in me you may have peace. And in this short phrase, Jesus cuts to the very heart of the Christian message. In Jesus, we might find peace. Now, there are a lot of places you might look for for peace. I had a look on the internet this week for peace, and I found a lot of suggestions, some of which are very valid. I, I'll read you five. If you do these five things, you're going to be a more peaceful person, apparently, than if you don't. So, first of all, take 12 minutes of quiet as you start your day. Wash your mind with mundane chores. Take a walk in nature. Do some gardening. And when you drive, turn your radio off. Those five things. Very valid, and if you're not doing any of them, I'd encourage you to do them, because you'll probably find they make you a slightly more peaceful person. They will have some effect, but it will be very limited. 
In contrast to all these, here we find Jesus' strategy. He says, the way to find peace is in me. Earlier that same evening with his disciples, Jesus had said this in chapter 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Here Jesus is saying that the peace is his, it belongs to him, and it's his to give. In the book of Ephesians, we find Paul, this early church leader, writing about Jesus, and he says in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. Now you might be aware right now that you need more peace in your life, and perhaps you wake up every morning with just a general sense of dread, or you just find that this anxiety keeps just cropping up in your mind, you try to push it away, but you're aware of this. And it could be about an everyday thing, Perhaps you're nervous about your coursework that's due soon, or you've got a difficult conversation you're facing this week. Whether it's the the big things or the little things that stress you out, what you really need, as valuable as they may be, is not 12 minutes of silence or to wash your mind with mundane chores. What I think Jesus is saying is that fundamentally we need Jesus. We need more of God, more of his peace in our lives. If you heard the vision talk from a few weeks ago, you would have heard me saying that we have certain focuses for this year, the first of which was growing deeper with God. And it's good for us all to make sure that our relationship with God doesn't get pushed down, doesn't get you know, prioritized out in our weekly schedule. We wanna give some time in our talks this year to help us understand how we can do this. And while there are practical things definitely we can do to grow deeper, like engaging with the Bible, like spending time in prayer, coming along regularly to worship together, to small group, and so on, we need to keep in our minds that it's, it's a relationship, it's a heart-to-heart connection that we want to foster as we grow deeper in God. And it comes down to where we stand with Him, keeping that relationship a priority above everything else. So peace is found in the person of Jesus. We also see in this verse that peace is not the absence of trouble. We read here, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Now, you know there are loads of Christian fridge magnets out there, and uh, some are a little bit twee, like nearly all of them are very twee, like these ones. Here's one um, somebody found, this is something about a frog. And then you've got keep calm and rejoice in the Lord always. This next one, Jesus is my co-pilot, that is actually theological nonsense. In Matthew 16, in the message, you can look it up, Jesus says this, you're not in the driver's seat, I am. So there is no way in a million years Jesus should be your co-pilot. You, in fact, are in the other seat, he's the pilot, he determines the direction, and we go where he says, okay? So, but I guess theologians don't make fridge magnets. (laughs) Here's the last one, if God has a fridge, your picture is on it. Now, as twee as that is, it's actually a lot more biblical than the previous one. So there are a lot of fridge magnets out there, but try as I might, I've never found a fridge magnet that says, in this world, you will have trouble. But it is the truth, isn't it? Life has its stresses and strains for those who follow Jesus as well as for those who don't. Life throws things at us which cause us concern. We so easily find ourselves worrying, getting anxious, and losing sleep. And I find it tremendously reassuring that Jesus was a realist. 
he doesn't paint this rosy picture, you know, now you know me, commit your life to following me, everything's just gonna work out absolutely fine. He says, no, in this world, you will have trouble. And certainly that was true for Jesus' disciples. After Jesus uh, had been killed, raised to life, spent 40 days hanging out with up to 500 people, and then he ascended to heaven, they, were, they went out to preach the message of Jesus and salvation, and they certainly experienced trouble. You know, we read in the accounts, we look in the book of Acts, uh, persecution in the extreme. We find beatings and imprisonments and riots, sleepless nights, hunger, shipwrecks, getting stoned in the old-fashioned meaning of that word, which meant people chuck rocks at you and try to kill you, floggings, executions. And the Bible tells us that those who follow Jesus will experience trouble. Followers of Jesus, however, are not to focus on the trouble that they will face in this world. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's the verse we're in, verse 33 of chapter 16. In this world, you will have trouble, but don't let your heart be troubled when that happens. Chapter 14, verse 27, as we just looked at. There's something different on offer for us from what the world gives. Without Jesus and the peace he brings, when people have trouble, which we all do, what happens? Well, their hearts become troubled. And Jesus says, don't let that happen. Don't be afraid. I'm giving you my peace. He continued, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The kind of peace that Jesus wants his followers to have is not about the absence of conflict or difficulty or trouble. It's not an external experience. It's an internal reality, an internal equilibrium that stays consistent no matter what trouble or hardship we might experience. The kind of peace is not due to the absence of difficulty, the absence of fear, but the presence of something greater. And that's described well in Philippians chapter four, verse seven. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This kind of peace is, is simply not natural. When you would expect a person who is experiencing trouble to have a troubled heart, the peace of God, the peace that Jesus gives us, which transcends all understanding, guards our hearts from being troubled. Maybe at the moment for you, everyone at work is insecure, there are people being laid off, panicking and so on, but you find you're not, not actually falling apart. Perhaps you have exams in a few weeks and all of your friends are majorly stressed out, but you just seem to have a peace. Maybe you've witnessed this in somebody else's life. Perhaps you've asked yourself, well, how come that follower of Jesus is just so peaceful in this troubled time? They should have a troubled heart. They're experiencing trouble. Why isn't their heart troubled? This is really hard to understand. It, that's right. It transcends our understanding. It makes no logical sense, but it's there. It's a reality. You're able to recognize that your life is not the sum of all your issues and problems and challenges and uh, so on. You know at a deep place in your soul that your life is hidden with Christ in God, so you can be at peace. No matter what happens to you, you can be at peace. In this verse here in Philippians, peace is said to guard our hearts and minds. In the original Greek in which this was written, the word guard is a military word, and the, the picture Paul is painting for us here is of an army surrounding a city to protect it from any potential invasion. So the inhabitants in the city can sleep soundly. They know they're safe. They're being guarded. And that's really a picture of what peace can feel like. 
doesn't make sense, but we just have this feeling that we are protected. As followers of Jesus, we have a deep conviction that over and above our experiences, often over and above our understanding, he is working things out. One of our staff, Ali, described recently how she went through a very difficult period with one of her children about 18 months ago, and for a period of about a year, her daughter experienced just a catalog of extremely challenging experiences, including being temporarily excluded from school, being kicked out of her father's house, being involved with social services on numerous occasions, self-harming, being sexually assaulted, taking overdoses and spending time in the hospital. Absolute nightmare for a parent like Ali. And this is what Ali said. Lots of people commented on how together I was. I had this amazing strength that came from nowhere. It was a supernatural strength that kept me going. A deep sense that God's in control, that God's got my daughter, that whatever happens, I'm going to be okay. I knew Father God was with me and I didn't have to try and stand up by myself. I learned as soon as something bad happened that I could text or email people in small group, small group and ask them to pray. There were people around me when I needed them. People asked me, people would ask me, how are you still standing? For me, there was no answer other than Jesus. It was that simple. I can't explain it. You just know you're going to get through it. It isn't because there's a promise that everything will be perfect or a promise of happy families. It's just a really deep-rooted joy and peace that it's going to be okay because Father God's got this. Jesus' call to be at peace is not encouraging us like an ostrich to stick our head in the sand and deny that there's problems, there's stuff going on, everything's gonna be fine. He calls us into a place of dependence on him and he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Now let me just insert a little aside just to say that if you're struggling with serious anxieties, there are practical things that it would be wise for you to do. There are sometimes problems where uh, we experience we do need to get some external help for, and so I would encourage you, follow your doctor's advice, take medication if they suggest it, talk to your small group leader or other close friends. I'm not just saying it's a simple case of pick up from the text and that's the, the solve all for everything, but it is important in addition sometimes to those things, to pay attention to this. So going back to the text, I, I try to imagine what it would have been like for the disciples the very next day after this conversation to have witnessed Jesus, handed over to the authorities, and then ultimately watched him die. This person who had embodied hope for them, who had raised the dead to life, who had healed the sick, appeared himself to be beaten by death. What now? for everything that they had been hoping for. They must have looked up at the cross and just not understood what was happening. And yet, God was working things out. And later, they realized, and we can look back now 2,000 years, we know, we see what looked like the greatest uh, mistake turned into the greatest blessing. God was, was working things out. And I think it's such a great, great source of comfort to us when we are struggling to work things out for ourselves to know that God above it all, he works out history. He works out, he knows how many hairs are on our head and he's working out our issues as well. And the final point I wanna draw from the passage is this, that peace is found in knowing how it ends. God reveals to us in the Bible how it's all gonna work out in the end. While we don't know all the twists and the turns in this journey, there are lots of things about the future we can be very certain about. 
And here's one, Jesus has overcome the world. And with this statement, Jesus references the battle that we find ourselves in, this cosmic clash between God's kingdom and the world, or the dominion of Satan, of the enemy. And this is really one of the main narratives right through the Bible. The battle begins on the third page of the Bible, continues throughout the whole of that library, and then on into history, right up to this point and into the future, until Jesus brings it to an end, as is captured in the vision of Revelation that was also given to John, the writer of the gospel we're looking at tonight. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The powers of this dark world, that's the battle, and for now, this world, honestly, is a really messed up place to live. There's a spiritual battle going on between the kingdom of God and the ruler of this world, Satan. Uh, earlier in this chapter in John 16 here, Jesus comments, comments sorry, about what his death on the cross is going to accomplish, and in verse 11 he says this, the prince of this world, he calls him, that's Satan, the prince of this world now stands condemned. As I go to the cross, this is what's gonna happen. The prince of this world is standing condemned. John Stott, the late great theologian of the 20th century, I guess, um, he, in his book, The Cross of Christ, just lays out the sequence uh, of God's triumph over our enemy in his book, The Cross of Christ. And in Genesis 3, God, God gives us a clue right at the beginning of the story about what is to come. Adam and Eve, the first people, broke a perfect relationship with God by giving in to temptation, the temptation of, of Satan, depicted as a, ser a serpent, who enticed them to try and be like God. And then God cursed this serpent, and this is what he said to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There will be enmity, there will be this ongoing struggle and God mentions the offspring of the woman, and we know that he was specifically referring here to Jesus. This is a prophetic word about what would happen as God's plan unfolded. The serpent would strike Jesus' heel, he himself, Jesus would be wounded, a reference to Jesus' suffering and his death, but Jesus would crush the serpent's head. Jesus would destroy Satan's rule of evil. So right after our parents' first moment of rebellion, God was giving hope to humanity. Even back there in the garden, God predicted the conquest of the great enemy. My friend and pastor, Rich Nathan, commented on it this way. The misery and bondage that the serpent brought about in Eden was triumphed over at the cross where the serpent struck the heel of Christ and Christ crushed the serpent's head. A passage which describes what happened at that pivotal moment in history is Colossians 2, verse 13, which says this, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them. On the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin, setting us free from 
that is our rebellion against God. Sorry, he, he took upon himself the punishment for our sin, setting us free from its bondage. Uh, at his resurrection, he gives us assurance that he has triumphed over death itself. He broke the power of the enemy in every possible way as the enemy thought he'd won and nailed the Savior of the world to a cross. But in that moment was ultimate triumph. And Jesus' conquest will be complete when Jesus returns and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we go from the third page of this book to one of the very last pages, we find in Revelation chapter 11, this vision that the Apostle John is having as an elderly man on the island of Patmos. And he sees here in this dreamlike vision, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Peace is found in knowing that God is ultimately in control and knowing how it ends. The father of one of our pastors on staff, Dave Miller, his father suddenly died a few months ago, and Dave wrote this. Losing dad was such a shock and so painful, we were very close. But through it all, we have known such a comfort and peace. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter, and we have known that to be true. We've also been strengthened by the knowledge that God isn't caught off guard by these things, but that he is in control and that he is good. For me, it's been simultaneously the saddest and yet most peace-filled time, each without diminishing the other. The hope of heaven is a huge and continual source of strength, not as some vague or desperate wish, like I hope that's true, or a crutch to help us cope, or like paracetamol to dull the pain and make us feel a bit better. Instead, it's a hope, he writes, based on this. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, if he really did overcome the grave, if that really happened in history, and I believe it did, then we are confident of seeing that again. Some of you will remember, and if you don't remember, it may be because you haven't seen it yet, and you should, the film, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and this famous piece of wisdom from the character Sonny Kapoor. I want to stay at the other hotel, the one that's in the brochure. In India, we have a saying, everything will be all right in the end. So if it is not all right, it is not yet the end. Everything, if you didn't catch it, everything will be all right in the end. So if it's not all right, it is, then it's not yet the end. Now, though Sonny wouldn't have realized it, that's actually far better theology than you'll find on almost all of Fridge Magnets available. About four and a half years ago, I had an experience which really shocked me, and it shocked a few people around me. Uh, I was pretty exhausted. I had a lot going on in my work life, also in my extended family. And my diary was just too full of things that just seemed like immovable commitments. I was working really long hours. I just simply was running on empty, I just, just on fumes, and uh, really emotionally just totally depleted. And I pretty nearly one day in a restaurant, I pretty nearly lost it. It's just as well nobody spilt a drink on me, otherwise I might have punched him. I was that close to being on the edge. And at that time, I was journaling occasionally. I've got, I found my journal from four and a half years ago here. And I just want to share with you a little bit of what I wrote in here. Now, I describe, first of all, this week as being an intense one, 
with a sense that the short-term future here is hurtling towards me. And uh, I, I just had so many tasks on my plate. I canceled everything I thought I could cancel, but I just had one after the other thing that demanded a lot from me. And it says here that I felt deluged with demands. And this list, as I went back and read it this week, I just thought, oh my goodness, how did I ever get through that? Because there were, there were so many things that I've listed down here, a lot of pressures, very complex things that I was juggling in my role here in the church, but also as I, I added a whole load of other things in my nuclear family, some stressful things were happening, and then also in my extended family, some things that were uh, significantly worse than that. And we were uh, having lunch with our dear friends Tom and Helen Murphy in this restaurant down by Castle Marina. And um, a new problem came up in that conversation that required some action and decision. And I just felt physically pressure mounting inside me, in my head, in my chest, in my gut, just this beginning to, I'm gonna explode or do something crazy. And so I just had to say to them, guys, I trust you to make a decision, but I'm out. I'm actually on the edge, and you know I can't do this anymore. And I teared up, and they said, oh, John, you know, what's going on? So I, I told them, and they offered to take some stuff off me, and Tom went and did a speaking engagement that week for me, and, and just took a bit of pressure off. And so we agreed, I said, you guys go back to the warehouse here, and I'm just gonna walk on my own. So I left there, and I walked very slowly along the canal back here to the warehouse, and took probably an hour to do that. And in the journal here, I just wrote, and I'll just read you what I wrote. This is me addressing the Lord. I poured my heart out to you. As I started my walk, I noticed this narrow boat, and so felt you speaking, I sat down and wept. And I sat there for quite some minutes just crying and just being with the Lord, and it was an incredible moment of grace. Many of you will know that one of the ways the Lord speaks to me is through things in the natural, and it has happened so clearly, and it's happened so many times in my life, that I take seriously what others might see simply as coincidences. So this is what I saw. The name on the side of this narrowboat is All's Well, Nottingham. And as you can see in this next picture from where I was standing at that moment that I looked up, of the 20-something boats in my view, it was the only one with a visible name. And I personally believe that God orchestrated that boat to be parked there at that time, that he prompted me to look up at that moment. And so I write down here, as I so felt you speaking to me, I sat down and wept. I was reminded of the hymn, All Is Well With My Soul, written by a man facing far worse than I am. And I sensed you saying to me, it's all okay. All's well in Nottingham. It's gonna all be okay, all's well. I've got the photographs here in my journal, I profoundly felt that God had it all in hand. It was going to be okay, it was very hard, it was very painful at the time, but it was gonna work out. I knew that God was ultimately in control. Some of you will know the, sto the story about the circumstances of that hymn that I referred to there being written, and I'll finish with this story. There was this successful lawyer, his name was Horatio Spafford. He lived with his family in Chicago, and uh, he invested in real estate in Chicago in the spring of 1871. If you know your Chicago history, you know later that year, the whole city burnt to the ground and he lost a lot of his sizable investment. 
Two years later, the family decided to go on holiday and come over to England. And at the last moment, Horatio was detained on business. So Anna, his wife, traveled ahead with their four girls, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta. And when they were halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, their boat was hit by another boat and it sank and all the children were drowned. A rescue boat found Anna floating unconscious in the water and she survived. She was taken on another boat to Cardiff and she sent a message back to her husband and this is a photograph of it, telegram, which began, saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio immediately left Chicago for England, and on the Atlantic crossing, the captain of the ship apparently told Horatio that they were passing over the spot where his four daughters had just drowned. And it's believed that on that voyage, Horatio wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. So I want to read the lyrics, which were written, bear in mind, in the 19th century, so the language is really very ancient, but I think you'll get the gist of what he's trying to say. When peace like a river attendeth my, so my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that's the chorus, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. Amazing, someone going through such trauma would have such peace and such wisdom in that moment. Now, there will be some of you today who you're going through some very terribly hard situations. You may be worried, you may be anxious, you're struggling perhaps to find any peace. And no matter what it is, God would want you to know that he cares deeply about what is going on. He is ultimately in control, and there is a peace which transcends understanding, which he wants to give you. And his invitation, simply, is to come to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. 